Welcome to the Becoming Beautiful I Am podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Joan. During our last episode, I talked to you about the garden, that great thing that is present right now that we don't see. I was gifted this beautiful dream on the night my grandmother passed away. And even as I was doing the recording last week, I was seeing things. There were insights and revelations that were coming that I hadn't even thought of before. And so I even went to bed that night just feeling so blessed and so thankful, uh, so grateful for all of the lessons that were embedded in there. And one of the lessons that I saw was this need to prepare for our re-entry into the garden. And one of the insights that came even after I completed the last episodes that I want to share with you is that death is not the point of entry into the garden. The point of entry is actually a choice. It's a choice to seek peace. It's a choice to rise and become the best version of ourselves. It's a choice to love. It's a choice to become the very image of God. So I want to take you back to the dream that I introduced in our very first episode, and that's the village of peace. I've obviously disembarked from a ship, but I don't see the ship. And yet I'm with two men who are obviously sailors by the way that they're dressed. And one of them is holding a passenger manifest. And we're, we're on this small, it's a very small beach because the mountain, this rock face is almost like immediately in front of us. Um, and as I look down to the right and the, the, the beach actually expands a little bit, but it's a very narrow beach. And this mountain, this massive mountain that is before us, and I make a choice. And the first choice is I'm going in search of my friend Ameze. One of the things I'm going to suggest that is this, that in the spiritual, there's a tracking process. Someone is aware of those who are ready for the climb, those who are ready to rise, as I like to call it. And we might think that disembarking from the ship is where we make the choice, you know, to go on this journey, to choose uh, peace, to choose love, to choose to be the image of God. And I think it is in part, but we could always turn back when we see the wave. So I think the real choice comes when we see the tsunami and all that it represents. We make a choice and then all of a sudden, our life becomes chaotic. Uh, We make a choice and then our greatest fears show up. We make a choice and then our personal demons are right there in front of us. And so it's easy to go back to what we've always known, to rely on ourselves, to survive another day in our own way of being. Or we can choose to go in search of peace anyway. It's at this point that I think we say to the great creator, I'm serious, I wanna go on this journey. And God says, okay, I will partner with you. I was looking and hoping that you would do this anyway. I wanna take you back now 
to Genesis 2 verse 9 because it adds on to what I'm saying. And I'm going to be reading from the Amplified Bible because it inserts certain keyword images that helps us to have a greater insight of what the verses are saying. And I would recommend that you pause, you know, and look this up on Google really quickly, Genesis 2 verse 9, or look this up in your Bible app, whatever the case may be. Or if you have a Bible, just grab a Bible and look. But here's what it says. I'm going to read it first without the picture inserts. And then uh, I'm going to read it once more with it, with the inserts. And so we can grasp the difference. So starting at verse 9. And the Lord God caused to grow from the ground every tree that is desirable and pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. All right, so I'm going to read it again now with the Amplified, Amplified Bible inserts. So this is what it says. And in that garden... The Lord God caused to grow from the ground every tree that is desirable and pleasing to the sight and good that is suitable and pleasant for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the experiential knowledge, recognition that is, of the difference between good and evil. Contemplate the meaning of this verse for a second. In this beautiful and majestic place that is the garden, God placed every tree that is desirable. It's pleasing to the sight and it's good. There's a tree of life. It is pleasing and good. And there's a tree of good and evil or knowledge of good and evil. It is also pleasing to the sight and it is also good. There is no bad thing in this garden. One tree offers eternal life. The other offers us an experience and the ability to know and discern the difference between good and evil. That's it. But if we go down this rabbit hole, we die. On the one hand, we can live forever. And in this place in the garden, we haven't done anything wrong yet. We haven't made a wrong choice. So we would be the very image of God. And what does that look like? Well, I'm going to take you back to the book of Exodus, chapter 34, verses 6 to 7. Moses has asked God to show himself. He wants to see God. And God says, if you look at me, you're going to die. So I'm going to show you a shadow of who I am. That means we can't exactly get the essence of what it means to be the image of God, but we can at least grasp it a little bit. Here's what God had to say about himself and his character. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, keeping mercy and loving kindness for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. 
eternal life lived as the one who is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, truthfulness, faithfulness, justice, mercy, and of course, the one I love, forgiveness. Imagine, that's who we are. That's who you are. That's who I am. This is the essence of who every human being on the planet has the potential to be. That's the choice, or at least it's the first choice. And the second choice is experiential knowing of good and evil. And of course, coming to that place where we can discern the difference between good and evil. And of course, the experience of death. These are the two choices. If we choose the tree of life, we remain in the garden. But if we choose the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we move through a life experience that I call the room. And in fact, all humanity is now moving through the room. Right there in the middle of the garden, we erect walls and we even put a roof on it and we build a little house and the great thing that is present becomes invisible. And it takes a whole lot of work to break down the roof, to break down the walls and to see what is present once more. The taking down of the walls requires a whole new way of being, a whole new way of perceiving. And this is what the transformation journey is all about. So the room is an experience. And as I like to say to all of my clients, the room is a memory. In fact, it's the first moment in life when we experience fear. And then as a consequence, we make the decision to disconnect from ourselves, from the people around us, and God. It's the moment that we experience a great spiritual wound. And it's the moment when we give birth to the false self or the wounded self. And I'll talk more about the false self in a moment. But for now, I want you to think about the room as the place or a moment in time where we experience this traumatic event. And it's not traumatic so much because of its intensity or the kind of event that it is, but it's traumatic because we experience this separation from our source of love. So it's in the room and through this separation or disconnection process that we acquire the experiential knowing of good and evil. And it is in this place where we choose to die. So the room contains our most painful and our most vulnerable moments. It's a moment where those things that we know should be present, where our ideas of what love is becomes distorted and 
our ideas are disrupted by something else that is inserted in our experiences. It's the moment where things like compassion seem absent, not only in that experience, but from our world, where grace and patience or just faithfulness seem unreal or out of reach, where justice and mercy uh, is just something that we talk about. It's not something that's real. And certainly forgiveness, well, what is forgiveness in the room? It's, it's one of those places where we get lost. And I want to give you a very real example of a client's story. And uh, by the time I saw this client, he was about 11 years old. But his experience happened when he was three. And um, I moved him through a forgiveness journey and a remembering journey and brought him back to that place where he could experience love again. But for about a seven-year period, he experienced a separation from his source of love. So I want you to envision with me and go to this place. We are in a townhouse. And we are on the second floor. There are three rooms in this townhouse. And in one of the rooms is lying a three-year-old. It's very early in the morning, say about 7 a.m. And he is laying in his twin-sized twin bed in, his, in a very small room. There's one window in the room. The color of the walls is gray, a very light colored gray. There is a curtain, a very light uh, cream colored curtain that is hanging in the window. Um, and you can see through it. So it's one of those uh, curtains. On the walls, um, there are some pictures of he and his family. Um, besides the bed, there is a change table um, there are some toys that are on the floor. There is a carpet uh, that covers the floor in the room. And uh, the carpet is also a gray color. You have a good sense of what the room looks like now? So his bed is pushed against one of the walls in the room. And um, from his bed, he can look out his door into the hallway and when he awakens, uh, his door is open and he can hear voices traveling from downstairs. His parents are arguing and he, he can hear his father say something like, do you want me to run you over? Do you want me to run you over with my truck? And um, so he gets out of bed and before he can make it to the door, he hears his father coming upstairs. His father comes upstairs. He doesn't say anything to him. He picks him up. Um, there's a change table that's in the room. He's three years old, but he's wearing a diaper. And so his father uh, comes up. And that's the reason why he came up to basically change him and get him ready for the day. And as his father has him on the change table and he is um, getting him ready for the day, changing his diaper, then putting on uh, a shirt and putting on a pair of pants, he is screaming at his partner who is downstairs. So the argument is continuing the entire time that he's changing him. And his father put, 
puts him back on the floor. He is feeling as though he's been attended to, as though his father loves him. Um, he's very used to the arguments that have been going on, and this is nothing out of the ordinary. And uh, so his father puts him down on the floor, and then he immediately rushes out the door, and the argument continues. And so um, at one point, he hears the door slam, and uh, eventually he makes his way downstairs. And it is a small place, so um, he's now in the hallway, and the door uh, is open, but the screen door um, is closed, and he does not see his mother or his father, and his young brother is sleeping in the next bedroom that would have been close to his, but his door was closed. And so he's downstairs and he's wondering at where both of his parents are. And eventually his mother comes in to the home once more. But this time she has blood all over her forehead, streaming down one side of her face, let's say the right side of her face. And basically dripping down on her shirt. And he does say to his mom, mom, are you okay? Are you okay? But she does not respond. And so he does not know what to do. Bewildered, um, eventually he goes outside. He does not see his father's car. He does not see his father. And so um, for, I don't know how long he would have been outside, but eventually um, he wanders over or a neighbor comes and gets him and he spends some time with the neighbor um, before the police eventually show up at his home and uh, his mom goes to the hospital. Um, it's unclear from his storytelling exactly how that happens but the neighbors eventually um, the door the door somebody knocks at the door and his grandfather is present and his grandfather takes him to um, his grandparents' home. He sees his mother on two other occasions, and then he never sees her again. And he never sees his father again. This is the room that humanity is experiencing. And I would suggest, rather than say it's an individualistic room, this is one person's life experience. I think we all know by now that we're so interconnected, six degrees of separation, as we like to say, that your experience becomes my experience through kind of a, a rippling effect. My experience becomes your experience through a rippling effect. And the interconnection then as a whole, humanity is experiencing this abrupt disconnection from our source of love, which at first seems like our parents, but the abrupt disconnection comes with the choice that is made in this moment. The death of something precious, like the bond we have with a parent, even if it's a violent parent, even if it's not such a great parent, the destruction of that bond destroys something within us. And of course, that ripples out to all the people around us. It's as though someone dies. And so there's a grieving process that we move through. 
So there is at first the abrupt disconnection. That's the first thing that happens in the room. And then the second things that thing that happens in the room is we whisper something I call the death wish. So we speak out loud or we whisper this deep down low in our spirits and our very essence of who we are. We say this is all too much. If this is what life is like, I don't wish to live it. And so even for a three-year-old boy who perhaps can't verbalize the wish to die, there is this sense of grief and loss that make that child wish to never experience this thing or to end this life because they don't want to continue to experience the pain that they're experiencing right now. I remember the moment I made my death wish. I was 15 years old. But do you remember when you made the death wish? Because we all have a moment. And we say it, and some of us choose to end our lives. I'm thinking of the COVID pandemic and hearing the story of a nurse who got infected and then chose to end her life. And what she was saying is, this is all too much. If having this virus is what life is to be, I can't imagine going on any further. I choose to die. Some of us do move on though, you know, or at least we try to cope. And it is in the coping that a third thing happens. This is when we birth the false self. So when I say the false self, I want you to imagine that the true self is that self that was originally created, the image of God. And the false self is a bit of an imposter. Someone, something that eventually must die. So the false self is not a term that I created. Um, it's used in slight variations by authors like Friar uh, Thomas Keating, the late Friar Thomas Keating, uh, Thomas Merton, and Richard Rohr, who wrote uh, The Universal Christ and also The False Self. And I'm partial to, I'd say, Thomas Keating's view of the false self. Um, the false self is a persona. Um, a bravado in a way, if you can think about it that way. It's, um, it's an act, but it's a particularly powerful act that you actually believe this is the nature of the individual who is in front of you. And so this false self that eventually all of us experience is created in response to the trauma of disconnection and separation. And I know we have a particular way of viewing trauma, especially in North America. It has to be something rather severe and intense, but it's not the event that matters so much as our response to the event. So we have a traumatic response as opposed to a traumatic event. And so when we have a traumatic response, we might experience things like 
uh, intolerance, shame, blame, grief. We might experience restlessness, like we can't stay in one place. And so these are emotional responses to the trauma. And in the end, there is only one name for this response, and it's fear. And I also want to clarify something else, and that is that fear operates not just at an emotional level, it operates at a biological, a psychological, and of course, a spiritual level as well. So the false self is hungry and it's overwhelmed by this insatiable need for power and control, affection, and you know what we would call self-esteem. Um, it's also deeply invested in being secure and surviving. And so the way it protects itself is to create this persona that can kind of feed itself with all of these elements on a continual basis. So you might be asking the question, does everyone create a false self? And I think, yes, 100% of us will at least go down the road of creating the false self. And then there are some of us who will undo the false self very quickly, especially if we have good mirrors around us. And I'm gonna talk about mirror neurons in a little while. The things that we reflect in our world are the people around us. And so if we have good people in front of us, then we reflect that goodness and the true self we revert to the true self very quickly. But if we don't have that good mirror, then the false self is created and amplified and bolstered and becomes very strong. And so it might take, in some cases, a hammer and a chisel to break down the false self. And in other cases, it might take a bulldozer. And in other cases, it might take death. That's how strong the false self is. So I think 100% of humanity is at least tempted to create the false self. And then there is a small portion that revert very quickly and undo that. And then there's a small portion that maintain it to the very end. So the false self is a persona and it's our way of coping and it's created when we experience an event that causes a traumatic response. And I know in North America, we often focus on a trauma as this, you know, great event like a, like a tsunami, like a hurricane, like an earthquake, um, and then more on an individual level, um, a car accident that's really severe and life-threatening, or something like having COVID. Right? Those are traumatic events. But I don't want you to focus on the event. I want you to focus on the person's response. When we experience our spiritual wounding, it's a moment in time where love seems absent. And so when we love, 
we empower people. When we love, we protect. When we love, uh, we persevere with them. We forgive them. All of those things that are godly, that very image of God is present. But in the moment of our wounding, they all seem absent. And so the thing that is missing in that moment is what the false self craves. And oftentimes what's missing is power, control, a sense of being esteemed or you know having the affection of another, a sense of being secure and safe. I can survive, right? And so because these things are are not present, these things then is an obsessive, compulsive, overwhelming need of the false self. And so the false self develops this fear-based attachment to people. And so always trying to create a sense of, of safety and security, uh, it attaches itself to those people that it deems safe. And then it also develops a fear-based aversion to certain people. So if you look like the people who wounded me, I will not in any way allow you into my circle. If the place that I'm going to resembles the place of my wounding, I'm not going there. If the situation in any way um, captures an essence of my wounding, then I reject it and I go in the other direction. I run. So the false self is created on a biological level because there's the sensing of the physical. It's created on a psychological level and and then it's also created on a spiritual level. And I want to talk to you now about that psychological level because what gets activated here is something we call mirror neurons. Now, mirror neurons are always activated. It's not like we can control them. Um, these are brain cells and we think they are the center uh, that controls our ability to be empathetic. Um, and so they were discovered in the 1990s by a group of Italian researchers, and they were actually studying the premortar cortex of the macaque monkey's brain. And what they found through happenstance um, is that this region of the brain plays a crucial role in planning and preparing and selecting um, coordinated actions. And what they observed was that these mirror neurons actually fire under two particular conditions. So the monkey sat and the monkey performed what they call a goal-directed action, such as grasping an object or holding it or, you know, manipulated in, manipulating it in some way, you know, like bringing an ice cream cone to your mouth. And uh, the second way in which it fires is when you sit um, completely still or the monkey sat completely still and observe somebody else completing a task. So the, so they think what is happening is this. And I think what is happening is this. When we watch someone doing something, our brains have the capacity 
to step into their consciousness, or we all have the capacity to step into each other's consciousness. And from that space of the person's perspective, understand what they're thinking, understand what they're speaking, understand the behaviors that they engage in. So the false self happens in our, our wounding. So we can mirror good things and we can mirror evil. But it gets more complicated than just seeing something and doing something. The false self mirrors the thoughts, the speech, and the behavior patterns of the people who wounded us. And not just one person, but a complex merging of people. Imagine that child that I spoke of watching his father while his father is changing him. And his father is obviously arguing with someone who is in a totally different room, not present. Imagine that child now seeing, bearing witness to his mother coming through the door with blood coming down her cheeks, asking the question, are you okay, mom? And receiving no response. Think about the mirroring that happens if you observe a parent now striking another parent or striking a child. Without even thinking about it, our survival requires that we step into the consciousness of the other. We understand their thoughts, their speech, and their behavior. And we do that so we can survive. And as we do that, and we come back to our own consciousness after this event has ended, the pattern stays with us. And so if we encounter events like this multiple times over our lifetime, that pattern of that one person or different people in the moments of our wounding, they get merged. Or let's say they exist together and it becomes this complex persona that has to be taken down one mirror image at a time. So I hope I'm not getting too complex for you. I'm, hope, I'm hoping that I have kept this simple enough for you to kind of go with me. So here's the beautiful thing. Go step one step further with me. There's a healing process that is unfolding throughout our life journey, whether we want it to or not. <laughs> and I'll say that it's a God-prescribed healing process. Here's the thing. We encounter people that remind us of the wound over and over and over again until we forgive and heal the wound completely. And even if you think you're healed, if you still encounter one person that triggers a memory, triggers a thought, triggers a response, you haven't completely healed the wound yet. And that person is here to help you understand that. And when you think about that on a grand level, here's what I have to say. 
The Bible has been revealing a plan for centuries and we've missed it completely. We choose war. It was chosen for us a long time ago to know, to have a knowledge of good and evil. That is an experiential knowledge of good and evil. And then to be able to discern the difference between good and evil. And that is exactly what is being played out here. So in the midst of our most painful moments, we have a choice. And the choice is always present. The choice didn't disappear. We can choose the tree of life or we can choose to continue to experientially know or recognize the difference between good and evil. And I know there's all, there's multiple levels of evil, right? We can say evil is striking a child and evil goes all the way to the extent of worshiping Satan himself. <laughs> so there, there's obviously ranges of evil right? And based on the exposure of the false self to the wound, it basically moves us to experience these grand ranges, right? And obviously, I'm not denying that people are born as psychopaths, as sociopaths, and that some people have no conscience, and so they will murder another um, without experiencing uh, that the pain of the other, right? Because we're all experiencing different things. Even if we are harming another, we are still seeing in the other person's face the destruction and we can choose to ignore that or experience it, understand goodness, and then revert backwards. So I'm going to end our conversation here. I hope you have been able to stick with me through the introduction of some of these complex thoughts and ideas, certainly non-traditional views of how we might um, look at the biblical text and apply it to our own lives. If you have any questions or if you had any questions that you, as you listened, um, reach out. You can uh, go to my website, which is drjoan.ca. You can connect with me by email at connect at drjoan.ca. I'm on Instagram at worldpeace2021. And uh, you can also shoot me a text at 647-500-2229. So thank you for listening to the Becoming Beautiful I Am podcast. Until next time, rise, forgive, and live fearlessly.